This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello everyone, I'm Erin Straza and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Today's conversation is part of our new summer mini-series called Showing Up, and each episode will explore a different aspect of what it means to be faithfully present in our current day. In our last episode, our intro episode, we touched on vulnerability, and Hannah, I have been thinking about that ever since. It's in a way I've been thinking about how we try to avoid vulnerability but really, we are now confronted with the unavoidableness of it. Uh, we have to learn how to invest it almost. Yes. And I have had a similar kind of thought pattern. After we have these conversations, I always come away challenged. And I hear myself saying these very idealistic things. And then I come back into my normal life and I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh I got to do that. <laughs> That's not fun. No. <laughs> It's scary. I was thinking about it as an investment. Like we're all vulnerable and we have like this vulnerability currency to spend. And where are we going to place it? What people places things? And you had said a few things that were challenging to me. Like, well, maybe you, this is the time to kind of shake up where you are investing yourself now that we are getting back out in the world. Our, our calendars are rather open. We can decide. And yeah, so I take I, that I like all that. back. <laughs> You're like, nope, not doing that now. <laughs> Let's just hunker down and be by ourselves. <laughs> That's right. Let's all go back to just hiding from each other. Because quite <laughs> frankly, the world that we exited a year ago, 18 months ago, was um, problematic enough. But I feel like even over the last year, it's gotten increasingly difficult. Definitely. That the fragmentation and the polarization has been even worse, if that was possible, mm -hmm. than when we entered this season of pandemic. So, like, I'm all for vulnerability and community and reconnecting with people, but I'm also sticking my head out of my little hole, looking around and being like, nope, you know what, we're just going to go back in here because there is too much division. There's too much um, fragmentation and polarization to feel like I can be vulnerable. Which is completely understandable. And yet, I think that there is something that we can gain from our vulnerability. I think there's, it's not all scary, although it is scary. It's not all scary and it's all not all negative. And recently we had a chance to talk with Rachel Jones about how she's developed these relationships and taken risks, especially across cultural divides. 
Well, Rachel, we are so thrilled to have you join us here for Persuasion to talk to us a bit today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, Rachel, we are doing a series this summer about deep reads. And so we wanted to have you on to talk a bit about your writing and your most recent book. But we want to start off making sure that people know who you are. We want to make sure they they know you and know a bit about your background and your story and, and connect them to you as the writer, first of all. Sure. So I'm an American. I'm from Minnesota. But I have been living in the Horn of Africa since 2003. So that's where I am right now, actually, as we're talking. I'm in Djibouti, Djibouti. The capital city is called Djibouti, and so it's really fun to say. It's a small country on the Horn of Africa, bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the Red Sea. And so in 2003, my husband and I and our two-year-old twins moved from Minneapolis to Somalia, where my husband was a professor. It was quite the change. Yes. I'm thinking Minnesota, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, oh, my. Yeah. We had been living in this apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis that was close to the university campus where we were students, and it was full of Somali refugees. And so as we just met neighbors and interacted with people and started to hear about the country and some of the development that was happening in the northern part, which was a stable, safer section of the country. Um, my husband was invited to come and teach at this university there. And so we thought that would be really hard <laughs> and really challenging and really stretching. And we just decided that that was what we felt like God wanted us to do. And so, yeah, in 2003, we packed up the twins and packed up our life and moved to Somalia. And we stayed there for a little bit less than a year because there ended up being some violence and we had to leave. And so he was again invited to teach at the university across the border here in Djibouti in 2004. And so ever since then, 2004, we've been here. Um, I now have another daughter. So we have three kids total. And um, about in 2016, we opened an English language K through 12 school. And so that's the main work that we do here. And I'm a writer. And so I have the immense privilege of being able to write about life here and about some of the people that I interact with in the culture and all the things that I've learned. So it's been a really good experience. Well, I have loved following you, Rachel. And I don't know if I had told you this before, but I kind of stumbled across your blog years ago. Um, I think it was under the name Djibouti Jones at that time. When did you start that? I was trying to date it in my own mind when I may have found it. Oh, my goodness. I started blogging in 2008, I think. I didn't even know what blogs were, but my I was sending all these long emails to my family with photos and stories, and it took so long to upload the photos. And then my sister, actually, for my birthday, she started a blog for me. And she said, this is what a blog is, and you should just put your stories out there for more people to read them and more pictures. And so um, that was under actually a different name. I think it was 2012, maybe, that I transitioned to being Djibouti Jones and really kept writing um, under that name and blogging for a long time with that. You know, just hearing you talk about the distance, it, what's changed in even from the middle 2000s, you know, like 2004, 2006, my husband and I had lived in New Zealand for a brief time. And I remember the emails back home trying to upload pictures. 
and getting an email in. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, wow, this is such a privileged life we lead. We can be so far away from home and have email (laughs) and pictures. And then just thinking about all that's changed in, what, 15 years. It's amazing. Um, Here we are today having this conversation across the miles. You know, I'm in Southwest Virginia, you're in Djibouti, Aaron's in Illinois. Um, So it has made the world feel a little smaller in some sense, but it hasn't, I mean, like we've had this greater connectedness, but in some ways that's caused us to rub up against our differences a little bit more, Mm. I think. At least that's what I see in the States. Like there's a greater proximity to folks, but those differences between us can be a little more pronounced. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I've really enjoyed about your work over the years, Rachel, is that you don't see these differences as necessarily a problem or an irritation, but an invitation to growth and learning and relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That the word invitation, that's that's what it is. Um I feel like we could really easily silo ourselves into people that are just like me. Even here, to be honest, I could just relate with other foreigners, even other Americans, if I wanted to. There aren't that many, but we find each other. It's a small country. Um, But that's not why we came here. And I don't think that's really an interesting way to live in the world either. And so it is the, the very differences that intrigue me, that I'm curious about, and that I love learning about. And so, and also those differences are coming from a culture that's very invitational. They're very open. And so Somalis are, um, they are eager to share their stories and to engage in relationship, which surprised me. At first, I wasn't sure, you know, how are they going to think or feel about this foreign Christian white American woman showing up in their village in Somalia? Um, I didn't even know how to wear the clothes. I didn't know how to walk on these rocky paths without rolling my ankle. I didn't know how to cook food. So I needed a lot of help. Um, And I think that being in that position of need helped them to invite me into their spaces because I wasn't coming as a person who had everything figured out and like could tell them what they needed to fix or how they needed to do things. But I was the one who needed help. And so what I experienced was this invitation and these welcomes into their spaces. And that warmth just made me um, really eager to continue doing that and to have that be the way I decided to relate with people and be here. I really appreciate what you're saying there about the the posture and um, kind of like the the attitude that comes forth if you come as a learner and come as one who is eager to learn of other people and what they are thinking and what their lives are like and how that really opens up communication and opens up space for relationship and for learning. I, I'm wondering if we can connect that a bit to your your recent book you you are a writer and so you've written um several books and contributed to books and your most recent one is titled pillars how muslim friends led me closer to jesus and i'd love to hear a little bit about how interacting with with muslims and learning about their faith and being curious about them and how they practice these pillars. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and um, how you Mm -hmm. approach it in your book. Yeah, I don't know any other way to be when I'm living abroad or in my own life than to be 
curious and open um, and interested in the way of life and the experiences of the people around me. And so Somalis are 99% Muslim. And in Djibouti, there are two other people groups. There's an Afar group and Arabs. They're all Djiboutian, but they are from different backgrounds and they're all Muslim too. So my, you know, my local surroundings is it's Islam and there's the call to prayer and there's mosques on every corner practically. And um, the whole country celebrates the month of Ramadan, the fasting month. And so, so Islam was very much a part of daily life here. And also in this culture, religion is visible. It's something people talk about and they engage in and they, you know, they're, they're wearing um, prayer caps or the women are covered, you know, it's very visible. And so it's different from in the United States where, you don't really talk about religion at work or you don't talk about religion when you're pumping your gas, you know, these kinds of things, but here it's just pervasive. And so with religion being so much a part of daily life for the people around me and myself being from a different religion as a Christian, um, I just, I wanted to learn about their faith. What do they do? Why do they pray five times a day? What do these traditions and rituals mean to them? both individually and then corporately as a, a global body of Muslims, which they call the Ummah, the community of Islam. But um, what I loved learning, which is so obvious when I think about it, of course, but I love to see that each person has a unique way of approaching their faith. And so, of course, there are the big principles of Islam, just like there are the big principles of Christianity. But each individual has a different way of experiencing them, a different thing that they love about it, or a different thing that's challenging for them. And so um, one of my favorite questions has become to ask my Muslim friends, what do you love about being Muslim right now? And it might be different, you know, in a month from now, but to hear their answers and to see their faces light up and be able to talk about what it means to them and, and the things that they find joy in about their practice has been really really fascinating and really fun for me to hear from their stories. And then they'll often ask me back, what do you love about being a Christian? And I can share what I'm experiencing at that time too. So it's been a, a back and forth kind of learning together about faith and what it means to, our, to each of us type of experience. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. I love what you're describing, especially the openness to conversation and the essential curiosity that has to come with it to allow for conversation. But I think what I more often encounter is people are very concerned that if they open up these conversations 
And if they ask questions or if they engage with people who think differently, it would actually lead them away from their faith. Mm. That somehow greater knowledge or awareness of someone else's belief system or practice would somehow harm theirs, Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be able to hold on to what they um, have been taught or what they believe in. And so sometimes the idea of being curious or having um, interfaith dialogue seems risky to people. It's a threat. But what I find so intriguing about your book and the way you are engaging this conversation is you are indicating that this was actually a growth process for you in your Christian faith, that the the curiosity and the conversations have actually deepened your faith. And I don't think that's what people would expect. I don't think that's what we would naturally think would come from interfaith dialogue. Could you kind of guide us through that process and and why it doesn't look like what we would anticipate. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the motivations I had for writing this book was to share that kind of story. Because I think people do feel threatened by other belief systems, other religions. Partly, I think that comes from the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding what they actually believe. And so there's some kind of threat because we often feel intimidated by something we don't understand. Uh, We don't know how to engage on it on that topic or that level. And so um, I, I have found that when I need to explain my own faith and what do I love about Jesus and why do I read the Bible? Why am I committed to following this way? When I have to explain that to somebody who doesn't have the same belief or the same background or the same, you know, immersive experience that I've had growing up my whole life in a Christian family, I have to, explain it clearly, but I also have to really understand it for myself so that I can be clear and articulate. And so that has those conversations have brought me back to the question of why do I love this? Why do I believe this? Now that I have to explain it to someone who doesn't share it with me and has really no context for it, I have to ask myself, do I love this just because that's what I always loved and that's what my family loved and that's what I knew growing up? Or do I really understand this and want to commit to it. So it becomes a more conscious choice. And then um, I've been exposed to different things about my own faith, which has helped me also to to grow, I think, stronger in my faith. So one example of that that I write about in the book is the story of Hagar. And Hagar also shows up in Islam. She's not named in the Quran. The only woman who is named in the Quran is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Hagar shows up in a lot of the Islamic rituals and practices and things that they do. And they have stories about her that aren't from the Quran, but are from other aspects of Islam. And as I thought about her and how my friends understand her story or what the traditions are and studied more about that, it brought me back to the story of Hagar in the Old Testament in Genesis and exposed me to different ways of thinking about her relationship with Sarah or with Ishmael, her son, or with Abraham. And so In that same way, like learning other people's traditions about some of our shared characters has helped me appreciate and study deeper the characters in my own text. And so um, I do feel like my faith has gotten stronger. It's been kind of clarified in some way, like the, the extra stuff, the cultural stuff has stripped away and it's really come down to, you know, the, the essentials, Jesus, the Bible, these kinds of things. What are some things that surprised you in terms of faith practices that you saw within the body of um, Muslim 
people, how they practice their faith day to day. You said it's an immersive experience because the faith practices are out there for everyone to see. Were there things about that that were challenging to you that then called you into deeper faith practices for yourself? Yeah, when I think of right away is they have no qualms about calling each other out on things. And this this could oh, be interesting. <laughs> this could be, you know, Somali character or just specific friends uh-huh. of mine, but it seems pretty general. So um you know, in Somalia, I covered my hair. I don't cover my hair here in Djibouti, but they would just say, "Hey, Rachel, cover your hair." You know, if my if a curly lock slipped out, you know, they would, or they would tell it to each other too. They weren't just calling me out on it as a foreigner, but or if somebody, um, you know, was thinking, "Oh, I, I don't think I want to fast today during Ramadan," people would jump on that and say, "You better fast. You have to fast." Or um, you know, things about giving, um, they just were very upfront about calling each other, keeping each other accountable in some way, but also like challenging each other to, to pray. Come on, it's time to pray right now. Let's go. Or being very vocal also about their expectation of reward for what they were doing. So one conversation I remember in particular was with, um, we had a, we have a guard at our house. And so the front gate from our front door was quite far away. And sometimes beggars would come to the front gate and ask for food. And so he told me, I would prepare a bag of food and I would bring it down to them out the gate. And our guard told me, Hey, look, Rachel, you need to prepare the food and then give it to me and I will deliver it to them so that we will all get to enjoy part of the reward for participating in this act of giving. And I felt at first, like that kind of made me uncomfortable because he was so explicit about the reason he wanted to be part of the giving was so that he would get a reward, you know? And, and yet when I thought about that, and I thought about my own attitudes, like, for example, towards coming here. I came to the Horn of Africa, so of course God will keep my family safe. Of course we'll be protected from different kinds of suffering. And so I had also the same idea, actually, that he did, that if I do something in the name of faith, that God would somehow guarantee me something, make some kind of promise that God never actually made. And so that small example of him saying, I want this reward for bringing the bag of food out, And then me examining my own attitude towards giving and some kind of, in a sense, the prosperity gospel, uh, it really just forced me to examine my own ideas in a a different level that I wouldn't have otherwise. And it also challenges me to think through, do like if we're thinking of wanting to be the hands and feet of Christ and, and to give for people in need, do I want that? all to myself or do I want to include more people in on that mm-hmm. process? Mm-hmm. And I I felt a little twinge of like, ooh, I think sometimes I feel like, but this was my good deed here. <laughs> I wanted to do it. And now you're trying to get in on it. And it's like, okay, do I want community and like bring it where there are more people who are all working together for the good of others? That That's a hard one. I love how it's so clear. Um, Clearly descriptive how this practice too, the practice of almsgiving or helping the poor, uh, you know, was so embedded in the culture that people understood this as something that would be shared, um, that had a communal dimension. But I also like how it caused you to reflect on your own um, practice, your own belief as a Christian. And that's one um, motif that you use in the book. You structure the book around the five pillars 
of Islam, hence the name. Um, could you give listeners just a run through of that list of the five pillars of Islam and then maybe um, tell us a little bit more about your choice to structure the book that way? The first one, the foundational one, is called the Shahada. It's the creed. And so it's what a Muslim says or what a person says to become a Muslim. And they also recite it each time they pray. And so that's the first one, Shahada, who is God, basically the creed. Second one is Salat. It's the five times a day ritual prayers. So Muslims also pray in non-ritual ways, but the specific pillar of Islam is the Salat. The third one is Zakat, which is charity, like we were just talking about. And they have, um, there's structure around that, how much they tithe and how much they give. The fourth one is Ramadan, this month of fasting that we just finished in April this year, um, where they fast from sunrise until sunset, no food and no water, which is really hard. Um, And then the fifth one is Hajj or pilgrimage. And so whoever can afford it at least once in your lifetime, the goal, the expectation, and the hope for a lot of people is that they could go on this pilgrimage to Mecca and participate in a series of rituals that happen there. So I structured the book around these five because I felt like it was a way to show a little bit of Islam. I have no intention of teaching people about Islam. For that, people should read Muslim writers and Muslim books. But I wanted to at least provide a little bit of of the basics and then to show how my story intersects with them. And those five are pretty foundational for Christianity as well. You know, creeds, prayer, giving, fasting, Pilgrimage was the hardest one, honestly, for me to to think about and wrestle with. And yet our whole life is that idea of pilgrimage and kind of the cliche of a journey, but um, but learning and experiencing things as we go, as we move through the world towards eternal our eternal home. Um, yeah, so that's how I structured it around those five. What would you say, you know, having worked through the book and hearing people's responses? to it, you know, you're, you're a few weeks out um, from its release. What has been like the most gratifying response to you as an author that you really felt like, yes, that, that hit home. That's exactly what I was hoping would come. Several things. Honestly, there's been many people have said I've given them words for their experience. That mostly comes from the American or maybe European foreigner who's living someplace outside their culture. And so the idea that they would resonate with the stories that I was telling from their experience really meant a lot. And then I have been able to have some of the most fabulous conversations with Muslims about the book. The foreword is written by a Somali Muslim man. And I had a conversation last week with a Catholic writer who writes about Islamophobia and a Muslim woman. And the conversation was just so much fun to openly talk about our faith and to, to share together these things that we respect about each other's religions and faith and to share our own perspectives without feeling threatened and without feeling like we had to agree. We could disagree openly. Um, And it was just so beautiful. And so after we finished having that conversation, I told the women, this is why I wrote the book so that myself and others can have these kinds of conversations where there isn't that fear and there isn't intimidation or anxiety, but just an ability to say, this is what I love. I love my faith. I love Jesus. I love um, living cross-culturally. And this is why. And be able to share that and then hear back from the other person what they also love about similar things. Um, 
So those kinds of conversations and reactions have been really joyful, joy giving to me. Well, Rachel, we are just so grateful that you would come and and share with us for our listeners of Persuasion. I know they will enjoy hearing about your life and your your experiences. We'll make sure that we get all of your information uh, posted in the show notes so that everyone can find your book and find you. But we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Thank you very much. I love sharing about these things. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rachel, and we would love for you to continue the conversation with us on social media Um, and to help you do that and maybe give you a little incentive to join us out there in the interwebs. We are able to give away um, two books, two of Rachel's books about her uh, relationships cross-culturally. And to enter the drawing to receive one of those books, all we want you to do is to share this episode and your thoughts about it, either on Instagram or Twitter, and tag Persuasion in it, and you will be entered into that drawing. We want to hear how you are crossing the divides in your own life, whether it is small cultural divides or larger ones. And of course, if you are a member of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, you can always join in conversation there. And if you aren't a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month to support this good work and lots of other good conversations that are emerging from Christ and pop culture. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for your work. And this show is part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can find all of our shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or just go out to iTunes and search for us out there. Thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.